It's time for JT the Brick. Hey, JT, how you doing, man? If you're not behind Mark Davis after this, and you don't think that Mark Davis has the mind to go all in, now you have to look at the situation differently and what he's doing for you as a fan base to give you hope to win. JT the Brick. That's his job. He's the owner of the team. He's got to have an opportunity to win championships. Mark's told me a hundred times in private settings what a Super Bowl would mean to him personally. And it means more to the fan base for him than it does to him. So Mark went all in. Just win, baby. That's what they got to do. And now, here's JT the Brick. JT, hour number two on Raider Nation Radio, 920 a.m. Hope everybody has a great weekend, a great Friday. And this time next week, we will be embedded with the NFL draft, and it's going to be epic. It's going to be absolutely amazing what happens in this town next week. Uh, Keep listening to the flagship of the Raiders, and we'll have everything lined up for you. Where we'll be, what time we'll be there. And as we've always said, we've said this to you for months, just show up. Please show up. Even if you don't see us, get to the strip, wear black, be there, be proud that Las Vegas is going to have this amazing, amazing week next week. Uh, Yesterday, I got the news that Daryl LaMonica passed away, the Mad Bomber. One of the all-time great Raiders. Not only one of the greatest legends in AFL history, an important mentor to many Raiders over the years. From Ken Stabler, the the friendship I talked to Fred Bolitnikoff about it. The Bolitnikoffs are devastated and crushed, and there's a lot of people throughout the Raider Nation that know Daryl LaMonica, and I love the man. I love the man. For years, I was able to host the Commitment to Excellence Awards in Oakland at the Oakland Airport Hilton, and the Mad Bomber would be sitting there with his wife, and they'd be at a table, Raider royalty, absolute Raider royalty, and he would come to all those local events, and then I'd see him on the field on the sideline and catch him at the game, and when the Raiders moved to Vegas, he was a part of a lot of the gatherings of the alumni when they came back. And he's just a legend, and he's such a beautiful human being, and he passed away unexpectedly, and a lot of people didn't get a chance to say goodbye. Uh, Bobby, who produces the show, went back in our archives and found a couple of interviews that we did with the Mad Bomber. I thought it would be great to do this today and lead off this hour before our NFL mock draft guest move aside and pay tribute to him. Here's a conversation that I had with Daryl Amonica, one of the all-time greats. Royalty joins us, the Mad Bomber, Daryl LaMonica. Daryl, good to talk to you, sir. How you been? Just fine, JT. Great to hear from you. First off, how are you, the family, during COVID-19, being safe, doing all the right things? How has this difficult time been for you? We're getting by all that. I think we all are in the same boat and, and you know, being cautious. But uh, the family's in good shape, and everyone has their health, so that's good news. Love hearing that. From Notre Dame to the Bills, I talked to a friend of mine that wanted uh, wanted me to ask you on how good were those Buffalo Bills defenses you played on. My friend reminded me, he said, ask Daryl that, because that Buffalo team you came into the league with had one of the great defenses in all of football. Talk about the early years in Buffalo and how much you love that. Uh, it was. Buffalo was great, you know, coming out of Notre Dame and not having winning ways. Uh, we went right there, and uh, uh, we were just in every game. We won two uh, championships, uh, uh, 64 and 65, and uh, we're in playoffs all four years while I was there. And it was a real special team, but we won it with defense, 
and we could score enough points and kick field goals to make it interesting. What a time to be there in Buffalo with those championships, to be AFL champion in 64 and 65, to be a part of that on that special team. They still talk about that today. We're going to get to the Raiders in your career and what happened then, which was greatness, but great to come into the league and taste winning right out of the gate, huh? Oh, with it, without a doubt. I mean, in four years in a row, and then I was fortunate. I got traded to the Raiders for another winning uh, stretch, and so I had a really great career, so it was very special to me. How controversial was that trade at the time? Because we don't have Twitter, and we don't have we don't have Sports Center the way we had it back then, and Coach Flores, who you're so tight with at that point. When you came to Oakland in that trade, how did you feel about it? What was the welcoming committee like for you? Well, it, it, it was a shocker. I had talked to Rob Wilson, Jr. and Sr., eight hours before I was traded, and they were all fired up, and I was going to come back, be their starting quarterback. And when I hung the phone up, I could have run through a brick wall. Eight hours later, I was traded, and I had to call the Fresno Bee to see if it was for real. And Al Davis was was calling me at home, and I I got to talk to him, and he went up and met him the next day, and um, I was still in shock. And uh, but it gave me a chance to come back to the West Coast, uh, play for for the Raiders, and be a starting quarterback, and and so that was. That was special, and I looked at uh, the roster, and our third league game was Buffalo in Buffalo. I started that same day <laughs> getting ready for that game, and we went back, and um, I had a pretty good day. We beat them 43-6, uh, to six, I think. It's incredible. Daryl LaMonica joins us. Uh, one more thing about the trade in Al Davis. He had such a good relationship with Mr. Wilson in Buffalo. A lot of people talk about that relationship, the AFL years, what it meant to them to fight for the AFL. What did you learn about the relationship between Al Davis and Ralph Wilson and how that came about? Well, uh, they do. They, they were talking, and, and on paper, uh, Art Powell and Tom Flores were uh, both great uh, football yeah. players. And uh, on paper, it looked like a real good move uh, for both both ways. Uh, especially for me, it was a shock at the time, but it gave me a chance to, to, to be a starter and uh, and lead uh, in, on, on a winning team. Yeah. And so it, it was, uh, back in those days, it was just, we played football. We played the game because we loved the game. Yes. And uh, that's what made it so special. Uh, yes, we competed, but uh, we had a lot of respect for each other. No doubt about it. Daryl LaMonica, Raider royalty, joins us. One of the all-time greats. So, 67, you come over to the Raiders. How does this sound? 13-1, and 12-2, 12-1-1, and MVPs in 67 and 69. I mean, that's an incredible stretch in the history of the NFL and the AFL. What prepared you for that? Was it Notre Dame? Was it your youth, your family? Was it the coaching? Because you really peaked at the great time in your career. Well, I think it's a combination of a lot of things. Number one, uh, we had a lot of great players on the Raiders, uh, starting, you know, Freddie Belenikoff, Cliff Branch, and Warren Wells as my receiver, Raymond Chester, and Jim Otto, probably the greatest center that's ever played the game, uh, you know, and stuff, and great defenses, and Willie Browns, and, and George Atkinson's, and, and that, and stuff, and, uh, but, you know, we, we won together as a team, and that's what was so special. No one individual was outshining the other guy, 
And, uh, you know, that's the way it was in, in Buffalo also. Mm-hmm. And so when you have that, you have a togetherness, I think, uh, and teamwork. Um, you play you play hard, and losing wasn't part of it. Uh, you know, we never looked at it that way. Yeah, you had one of the greatest records of all time. And this record and what you did was incredible. Daryl LaMonica joins us. So the Mad Bomber, you're throwing deep. What was that like calling plays and in the week of practice? You had all these weapons, but at that time, ball control was a big part of the AFL and then the NFL handing it off and then just throwing on third down. Now it's a video game. You wanted to throw it deep. How did you have to sell that vision in practice and make sure you got your deep throws in for every game? Well, basically, I got a lot of that from Al Davis. Uh, Al Davis... had two things that, that he was worried about. And he said, what's the most important thing you did today? And I would say no interceptions or no fumbles. Mm. The team with the, with the best record of no interceptions and fumbles, you win 93% of the time, and I think that's still the same today. You know, it's not how many pass completions you have, how many touchdowns you have. And, you know, that's, that's what Al believed in. And Al said, you only want to make eight or nine big plays a game. TDs or field goals are a combination of both. Uh, and then the rest of the time, you're trying to use as much time off the clock as you can. What really made it uh, with the Raider offense, we played the entire field. The field's 53 and a third yards wide. With our offensive structure, we used the entire width of the field. So it really opened my passing lanes even wider than they would be if I was only playing in tight formations and stuff. And that's what uh, made the Raiders uh, and the AFL different because we would put two wide receivers over on the same side and move the tight end over on the other side. And uh, the old NFL wasn't doing it at the time, and then they were forced uh, to make some adjustments. Daryl LaMonica is our guest. It's it's an amazing era. You talked about Coach Flores, you, George Blanda, Ken Stabler, the era after that. I mean, a high level of competition. You guys were all demanded to win. If you got hurt, you wanted to get your job back. What was that like back then, looking over your shoulder, taking over for Coach Flores, coming in there? I mean, this was pressure back in the day. You're, you're not earning the money that they're earning today. You're trying to put food on the table. You're, you're the MVP of the league, and you want to win games. How did you handle, Daryl, all that pressure at that time? Well, you know, it's pressure, but I, but I think uh, it's respect of your fellow teammates. Mm-hmm. Uh, Blanda was a great football player. Stabler was a good football player. You work extra hard to be number one, but we know if one of those guys comes in, you know, they'll be able to keep the team in a winning mode, and, and that's what was special. So it was a driving force, I think, for all quarterbacks that uh, you always work hard. But, you know, we had a good coaching staff. We had a coaching staff. Uh, that put in uh, offense, defense, and uh, we won with special teams. Even our special teams, we would contribute, and um, that's what makes all teams that win special because they have the drive and a desire uh, to win all games. Joe Namath won a Super Bowl. Uh, Lenny Dawson won the Super Bowl, and you had two MVPs wrapped around that, and you were arguably the best player all that time. So at that time, it was frustrating. 
you wanted to win, you wanted to win the Super Bowl, but you outplayed some of these guys and had a lot of respect for your brothers from the AFL who were going on to win and having accomplishments and winning Super Bowls. You understood the strength of the league and how important those victories were. Well, yeah, that's what made us. Uh, that's what I was very pleased to have played in, in the AFL, yeah. which merged with the NFL and stuff. And we always wanted to be competitive. And I played 12 years, and I think 10 out of the 12 was in playoffs, uh, championships, or Super Bowls. And the other time we were very close. So, uh, you know, I played with some great football players and had some great teammates, and that's what was so special to me. And it was always us and we. It was never I, I, or me, me, and, and I, th- that's what I remember the game being, and uh, it was very, very special. Well, you know how much you mean to me. It's an honor to see you when I do, and we didn't get a chance to sit down with our wives together in Napa this year because of this, and there's so many big events lining up in Vegas uh, once COVID-19 is behind us, and we know we're here a lot. And again, an honor to talk to you. You be well. Thank you. Appreciate it. So as you can tell how vibrant he is and his energy and what he was all about, an avid fisherman, an outdoorsman, a man who liked to travel, a beautiful human being, respects to his wife and his entire family at this time. Uh, This is a big one. They're all big. Whenever a human being passes away, we talk about it. Whenever a legend passes away, we discuss it. And I'm sure Mark Davis and the organization is going to do a big job, as Mark always does when it comes to the alumni passing away and the importance of their legacy throughout the Raider Nation. Daryl LaMonica, rest in peace. This is Raider Nation Radio. Car back into the gun. The backfield is empty. Takes a snap. Fires on a cross, spin, jackpot, baby! Vegas touchdown, car to Darren Waller. JT, welcome back. Friday, getaway day here, even though I'm going nowhere. Getting ready for the draft next week on Raider Nation Radio, 920 a.m. Brought to you by Modelo. The fighting spirit of Modelo will be at Cafe Americano next Thursday to kick off the draft from noon to 2. Excited about that remote. Seth Galina going to join us here in a moment, a mock draft expert for football focus. Hope you enjoyed another conversation that we had with the Mad Bomber, Daryl LaMonica. Put up a nice post on Facebook of fans coming out of LaMonica from all over commenting on the Mad Bomber. And uh, the Raiders, everything they put out at Raiders.com is fantastic. The history of Daryl LaMonica. Please go to Raiders.com and see the tributes to Daryl LaMonica. That would be great. So we're getting right around the corner after this weekend with the draft. Seth Galina joins us, the senior football analyst for Pro Football Focus and a co-host of a podcast that I listen to, the Too High podcast, and he joins us on Friday. And let's jump in here right out of the gate, Seth. I want to talk about this quarterback draft or lack thereof. I know you broke this down in detail. What do we have to look forward to? Uh, Well, it definitely seems like it'll be better next year. I think that's for sure, though obviously we have a full season to play, so who knows. I think this class is its average. I don't want to call it weak. It's certainly not like last year. I do think it's better than uh, the 2013 draft. I think people talk about that one. But, of course, like we're not going to know until a few years. But I do think it's, it's average. I think oof, 
you know, you're looking for that generational type player in this draft. I don't see it. Honestly, I don't really see it for any position, never mind just quarterback. So, yeah, I'd say it's about average. All right, well, that's interesting because I'm looking at the the top quarterbacks here between Kenny Pickett and Malik Willis here. And with the tape and what we've seen with arm strength and, you know, a couple of mock drafts I'm looking at have Pickett going six, uh, maybe possibly to Carolina or Malik Willis there. And I remember Justin Herbert dropping and Miami not taking him and him falling to the Chargers and how he's turned out to be a great uh, quarterback in this league. And I'm, I'm talking super elite. Do you see any comparison with Pickett coming in this year to what we saw with Justin Herbert when he was coming out of Oregon? Well, you know, the issue is going to be, I think just in general with quarterback play, one of the things that's kind of the most important is processing. And it's like the hardest thing to project is processing. We can always project athletic ability. That's not going to change. But processing is the hardest thing to project in the quarterback. Honestly, it's the hardest thing to project in any position, but quarterback being the most important position, you know, it's why we talk about it all the time. And it was always hard to project. You know, you talk about Herbert being this super elite player. I, I, there, was, there wasn't that much on his tape to tell you that he was going to be this. And I mean, like, he, you're talking about a guy who if you said, give me um, the next five years of a quarterback of anyone in the league, I, I might be picking him. He is super clean as a processor. And then the bonus is he can make throws that other people can't make. With Pickett, you're like, okay, if you're picking him six, you know, like the Panthers might take him at six. You're mm-hmm. saying to yourself, he is going to project at cleanly as a processor. But the thing is, does he have that bonus that's going to take you through the playoffs? And that's arm strength, that's mobility, that's all that stuff that, that we see quarterbacks win playoff games. Um, you know, yes, okay, does Jimmy Garoppolo win playoff games? Yes, but that's based on a lot of other factors. Does Jared Goff win playoff games? Yes, that's based on a lot of other things outside of his control. But, like, when you're trying to win a Super Bowl, you need that bonus stuff to go along with processing. And that's why a guy like Malik Willis, I'm not saying I'm, I, I think he's the greatest quarterback of all time, but I, when you look at Malik Willis, he has that stuff. The running ability is off the chains. You can throw the ball a mile. The processing wasn't there in college, but like that doesn't mean it won't be there at the next level. Um, so at least you have something to hang your hat on with those tools rather than Kenny Pickett, who doesn't have those tools, but obviously had a better college career in terms of processing than Pickett. Seth Galina, yeah, Seth Galina is our guest from Pro Football Focus. I like what you said there. What, what's interesting about your analysis is as you judge these guys and their limitations, they should be able to work them out with better coaching, higher-level coaching, quarterback coaches, offensive coordinators, head coach to get them ready. But, look, I, I'm fascinated with this Carolina pick at six because big picture for me – is you got to fire Matt Rule if he doesn't make the playoffs. This is not working out. He was supposed to be this Baylor offensive genius from Temple to Baylor, going to come in, be the next boy genius, and they can't get the quarterback right. They can't get the quarterback right in Cleveland for decades, in Detroit for decades, and coach after coach after coach gets fired for it. So let's stay with Carolina at number six because if they go with Willis or Pickett there over Jimmy Garoppolo, Baker Mayfield, whoever it is, uh, is the coach going to have enough time to develop the player to keep his job? Yeah, I mean, that that's the problem there. Obviously, there's issues in Carolina with the coaching staff. 
they already fired Joe Brady mid-year last year because yes. the offense wasn't working out. So they're under certainly a lot of pressure. I think with them at pick number six, because it's not a it's this unbelievable quarterback class, what you should be doing, and now remember, they don't have any other picks in the first three rounds. Mm-hmm. It's six and then nothing. So, like, they have to look at it and say, okay, wait. Do we love Kenny Pickett? Maybe. Do we love Willis? Maybe. Like, they might. And then if they, if they like him that much, they take him at six, and then you, you roll the dice there. But I think you have to look at it and say, okay, where does where does the, the world, where does the league, where do all these draft analysts think about the quarterbacks this year? Well, no one has a super high grade on any of them, which means – and, and – no, no GM, no coach has ever been consistent making picks. Like, we know that. Like, it's a crapshoot. So, like, hey, let's trade back. Let's go to the 15, 20, I don't know, whatever range it is. Let's go there. And we pick up another draft pick because, like I said, they have no other draft picks in the top three rounds. And we still get a quarterback that's part of that tier one of quarterbacks, whether it's Willis or Pickett or – or Sam Howell or Desmond Ritter or Matt Corral, like, like don't be overconfident in your evaluation and being able to evaluate quarterbacks to say, okay, we can get an extra pick and we can still get one of the tier one quarterbacks. So I think for them, that's, that's the best scenario. You put all your eggs in the, in the pick number six quarterback basket, you probably are out of a job next year. Seth Galeen is our guest. Matt Corral, the quarterback out of Ole Miss who got hurt in the bowl game. I like him a lot. I'm seeing a mock draft, two of them, that has him going to the Commanders at 11. Another guy that I think is probably a second or third round talent with his size and ability that the panic mode of teams that might need a quarterback that would take him that high. Where do you have Corral going here? And what's impressed you after his injury and what he's been doing in the offseason? Yeah, I mean, I think he, he obviously the, the production at Ole Miss was very good. I think the concerns are what, actually that production was when you look into it because if I'm not mistaken he led the country in yards on screen passes yards on RPOs and yards in, on double moves so like that doesn't leave a lot of yards in terms of you know quote-unquote NFL passing contests so you so like, we just don't have a lot of tape on him doing those things now is he accurate yeah is, can he move around yeah does he have a strong enough arm yeah but again it's like we just don't have a lot of tape on this guy doing NFL stuff so you wonder about him. So then, then it's like, okay, but it's like you said, you like him, but you said you like him, but then you also said second, third round grade, which is kind of how I feel too. It's like, yeah, I like him, but in this class, like, why don't you just wait? Like, or, or, or if you feel like a, a team is, is going to be confident about their quarterback evaluations, let them pass you and go back and, and find another draft pick, you know, and, and still take a quarterback in the, in the um, you know second maybe late first or, or second round like that's kind of how I see this whole quarterback class. Um, so yeah, I think like the the commanders taking him. I mean, especially after just trading for Carson Wentz, doesn't seem that great to me in the first yeah. round. But yeah, maybe in the second third round, I could see them looking for a younger quarterback if um, if the Carson Wentz thing doesn't work out. Seth Galina, senior uh, football analyst for Pro Football Focus. You know how great of a job they do. I'm a huge subscriber and fan of Pro Football Focus from day one. You know, Georgia's defense had the type of talent and depth that kept Trayvon Walker and Jordan Davis off the field. They weren't on for every defensive snap. For those two freak athletes in draft history, are you concerned with their lack of on-field production at times? Somewhat. 
Um, because you're also saying like, Hey, like I, I understand that the team is loaded and you're trying to get a lot of players snaps because you want to keep guys fresh and your, your job isn't to, is to win a national championship, which they did and have the best defense of all time, which they did, you know, whatever. But I think you're more concerned with, especially when it comes to Trayvon Walker is the actual production when he was on the field, especially as a pass rusher, great run defender, absolutely great run defender. And I think the interesting thing to me is he's very technical as a run defender, which he is not as a pass rusher. So you're thinking, okay, well, why? <laughs> like, why do you not have a pass rush plan? Why do you do not have any pass rush moves? Um, but obviously teams are looking at him and saying, okay, but he's a 10 out of 10 in the height, weight, speed, agility, uh, bench press, jump type of situation. And he does this thing at an elite level. Obviously, in the NFL, you have to be able to rush the passer at an elite level, especially to go in the top five if you're an edge rusher, or the top, honestly, the top 15 if you're an edge rusher. Um, but teams are just saying, hey, um, if he's this athletically gifted, we don't care. That's the smoke. I mean, this, look, two months ago, you can tell me that this guy was going to be uh, a top 20 pick. So, but obviously, where there's smoke, there's fire. Everyone's saying that he's going to be not only a top 15 pick, but potentially the number one overall pick. Um, the production isn't there. You're banking on something that isn't there. Do you want, like if you were a GM, would, would, is that something you would want to do? I don't know if it's something I would want to do, um, but clearly this is uh, where he's going to end up going in the top 15. You know, this offseason, Devontae Adams, Tyreek Hill, Christian Kirk have reset the market for wide receivers and what they're getting paid. And, there's more on the way with Debo Samuel, A.J. Brown, Terry McLaurin, all on the final year of their rookie deals. Where te- will teams look to take advantage of this deep wide receiver class because they don't want to be paying $25 million a year? Yeah, I mean, you're already seeing it. I mean, like, when teams that are Super Bowl contenders, you know, Packers and the Chiefs are saying, hey, we just can't afford it. We, it's, just, it's just not useful for us to put all this money into one wide receiver you know, if you don't have a quarterback, sure. Like maybe you feel like hey, we, we need to give our, you know, our mid-range or mid-tier quarterback a, a really good player. But if you, these teams feel like they have the quarterback, then they're going to say, well, man, we just can't, we can't afford all these, these rising prices of receivers and you might see more of it. Now, the, the interesting thing is like, when you talk about a Debo or you talk about an AJ Brown, like those teams are, have these mid-tier so do you want to just say, hey, yeah, whatever, we'll just we'll trade um, Debo, we'll trade A.J. Brown, and now Tannehill and Garoppolo, now it could be Trey Lance, obviously, but Tannehill and Garoppolo are, are sitting there without a security blanket, um, and they're not, they're not Aaron Rodgers or Patrick Mahomes. Like, do you want to do that if you're those teams? I get it more from the perspective of Kansas City and Green Bay. The other teams, you know, McLaurin, again, like, if you're Washington, you're like, hey, well, this is one of our best players. It's not like we have the quarterback. So that, to me, is the interesting decision that these teams are going to have to make. Obviously, mm-hmm. receiver classes are going to be deep for the next 10 years. That's just how high school football is and how college football is. You're going to find receivers everywhere in the draft. But at some point, you know, you have good players who played at the NFL level at a high level. You want to keep on. You know, you want to keep them if they're, especially if you don't have a quarterback. We're wrapping it up with Seth Galina. Happy to have him on from Pro Football Focus. Finally, Seth, I look at the offensive linemen, 
And this topic's been fascinating me for a long time. There's some really good offensive linemen coming in here that can go high. Evan Neal from Alabama uh, is a hell of a player, and he's going to go, obviously, really high. And some of the other top ones that I have here on a couple of the mock drafts, if you can get a super elite offensive lineman in the top five, I I agree to it. Go get them because they're going to be great for 10 years. But if you can't, I, I see so many teams get offensive linemen in the second, third, fourth round, and the players don't even start. They're developmental guys. And I've always said, get your offensive lineman in free agency. Get your offensive lineman that played four years. He's coming into the last deal of his rookie contract. His extension doesn't get picked up, and you can develop him. And you know that he's played three or four years in the league. How does this O-line draft look to you, and will there be depth after the first round later on? Because I have no idea if these guys are going to be any good in the third, fourth, or fifth round. Some of them never make the team. Yeah, I kind of kind of agree with you. And honestly, if you look at what the Bengals did, you know, right. we said they have to go, they have to figure out their offensive line this offseason. And they went and they and they got some free agents. Are they like this, this unbelievable? Did they get turned on? Said no, but like got some good players that will be better than what they had last year. And it puts them in a position where at pick 31, they don't have to stay and do exactly what you're saying, which is like, oh my God, we have to take this late first round player basically in the second round at pick 30, 31. Like, and we don't know what's going to happen. So I, like, I, I agree. I like what the Bengals did in that sense. And then now they're kind of free to do whatever they want in the draft. Um, in terms of the tackle class overall, like you have, in my opinion, you have a tier one group, which is Evan Neal, Eki Iquanu, and, um, and Charles Cross from Mississippi State. Like those to me are your tier one. Take them top all three of them easily. Um, and then I think there is a drop-off because then you're looking at guys like Bernard Ryman, you're looking at Trevor Penning. Um, level of competition is a concern with those guys. You know, we're talking about a Central Michigan kid and a um, Northern Iowa player. So, like, you know, level of competition compared to the two guys playing in the SEC and one of the ACC. I would take those three, the tier one guys, top ten easily. Honestly, I, I know the Jaguars are probably going to end up taking Hutchinson or, or Walker or something like that, but, like, if I'm them, I know that they, they, they got Cam Robinson still, but like if I'm them, I don't even see I don't see why they're not thinking tackle at that pick as well. Um, because like you said, get a guy there, pair him with Trevor Lawrence. Cam Robinson's clearly not the answer at tackle for them. So, and plus, you know, you can move the guys around, you can play him a right tackle, left tackle, whatever. So, to me, I agree. I think you got to go out and get this guy as early as you can. One of one of those three, I think you got to get him as early as you can. Thank you, Seth. Talk to you and have a recap right after the draft, and uh, it's great. Great work, and I'm following you here. We'll retweet what you do. Are you doing one last mock draft? Are you going to be putting them out? I know everybody at PFF tries to do that. Uh, yeah, I guess uh, you can go on uh, on PFF.com and find. I'm doing eight mock drafts, one per each division, three rounds wow. uh, for each division. So, um, yeah, you can go on and find PFF.com and you can find those. All right. Thanks, Seth. Take care. Good luck. See ya. Appreciate Seth joining us. A really good insider here with a big career in front of him. If you can get on that team at that age at Pro Football Focus, you're going to have a nice career. Uh, When we come back, we have another draft expert, this time from CBS, Ryan Wilson, who has a mock draft that's getting a lot of attention because he has several trades. Will the Raiders trade in to the first or second round? We'll get to that next as we continue. Raider Nation Radio, Friday, brought to you by Remy Martin, Team Up for Excellence.
Car though, throwing, got pressure to the left, runs away from it, fires back to the right, beautiful, Hunter Renfro to the Washington 44-yard line. What a throw, what a move by Derek Carr, who was under pressure, stepped away from it to the left, Lincoln, and made the completion, buddy. JT, as we're wrapping it up here on a Friday, Q, Vinny Bonsignor, all of our teammates over on the Raider digital side, Eddie Pascal, Jason Fitz coming in from ESPN, uh, my partner Eric Allen on the pre and post. We're all part of the coverage next week, our entire lineup, Clay in the morning, Vinny Bonsignor, Heidi, and the great work she does, and everybody else that we count on for this great content that we're going to get here. Uh, let's continue with the mock draft coverage, and we'll have a few next week too. Really excited to talk to Ryan Wilson from CBS. I've been following his mock drafts for the last couple of years, and this one is a good one. Ryan, thanks for joining us on Friday here on the flagship of the Raiders. And I was saying, I don't know a guy who's dug deeper than you into these mock drafts, and you've worked really hard over the last couple of weeks. How you doing? Hey, JT, I'm hanging in there, man. Yeah, that's exactly right. My, my uh, employers are hardcore about this mock draft business. Uh, keeps me on my toes for sure. So, yeah, I just busted out a seven-rounder on Monday which can only mean one thing, that the draft is close, and then I'll get to take a break in a, in a week or so here. So I'm looking forward to all that. So in your first six picks, you have three offensive linemen and three defensive players there. So before I get to what you're doing early, where are you buying into the quarterbacks in this draft? Because as you know, a lot of your peers and a lot of others don't think they're great high-round grades, but we know everybody's going to reach for them. So let's start with the quarterbacks and what you have. Yeah, that's going to be the big mystery, right? So the issue is if you're a team in desperate need of a quarterback, and, and that starts with the Carolina Panthers, the Atlanta Falcons, uh, the Seattle Seahawks even, and that's pick six, eight, nine. There is no Trevor Lawrence. There is no Joe Burrow. There's not even a Kyler Murray. He was a two-sport two star until right to the end there when the Cardinals took him first overall. So you, you are going to be reaching if you take one of these guys in the top ten, and, and that's just the reality of it. Uh, I have these guys as, as second-round grades for the most part. I like Matt Corral as a late first-rounder, and by late I mean pick 27 or, or after that. And you talk to NFL teams, and they're all over the place. There there's some teams that agree that most of these guys are second-rounders. There's some teams that have talked themselves into, into Kenny Pickett as a first-rounder, probably the best of the bunch in terms of being ready to play sooner rather than later. And Malik Willis, I think we all agree, probably has the highest upside, but also comes with the lowest floor. So that's the math you're figuring out right now if you're the Carolina Panthers for, for say, at six. And, and here's where I keep coming to you on Carolina. I think Carolina's going to take an, an offensive tackle based solely on my gut. I haven't, haven't done any reporting mm-hmm. on that, but he, here's why. They passed last year on Justin Fields and Matt Jones and took a cornerback, J.C. Horn, who had a really good rookie season before he got hurt. The quarterbacks in this class would be behind both those players and would be behind every other quarterback drafted in the first round last year and probably would be behind Davis Mills had he returned to school at Stanford, who probably would be the most likely first overall pick at quarterback this year. So mm-hmm. that's one thing. Number two, it doesn't matter who you draft at six, JT. If there's no offensive lineman there to protect him, it's going to be hard to watch. It's going to be a lot like what Sam Darnold went through. And I will say this. I've talked to, I've talked to teams that, that have been quite honest and said, look, Sam Darnold is going to be better than whoever you bring in a quarterback. Baker Mayfield, who we've heard in reports has possibly ended up at Carolina at some point, would be better than whoever, better than whoever you bring in a quarterback. And all those things taken together lead me to believe that no matter how desperate a team like Carolina might be for a quarterback, it just makes more sense to trade for for a Baker Mayfield, for example, and go forward that way and just take an offensive lineman at six. That, that's where the building has to begin 
because, like I said, you can put Aaron Rodgers behind that offensive line, he's going to look exactly like Sam Darnold did last year. Ryan Wilson's our guest. This is fascinating to me on Carolina. It's one of the big storylines because I don't believe Matt Rule can keep his job if he doesn't make the playoffs again. The, the team has been a disaster since he's taken over. I don't think David Tepper, the richest owner in the NFL, is going to be patient for long. So it's one of two things for me. Either Tepper gives Rule the ability to get the quarterback and then he, has, he buys time because you can't get fired if you're breaking in a young quarterback. That's going to take some time or – they decide to move off of that, trade down, and go after Baker Mayfield, who only cost $18 million in a market now where quarterbacks are going for 35 to $50 million. I think this is a critical moment for the history of Carolina. And if they go quarterback there, to me, it's going to be another two- or three-year rebuild. I don't think they have the offensive line to build around a young quarterback, as you said. That, those are all fantastic points. And for as as impatient as David Tepper appears to be, and I understand why he's investing a lot of money and they're putting a pretty terrible product onto the field, he, he probably needs to come around to the idea of what you're laying out there. You can take a quarterback, but we know what that's going to look like. It's not going to be pretty because he's not he's going to be ill-equipped based on the, the, what he has around him. And your point about trading down is a good one. And, and you have to hope if you're sitting there at six, there's a team maybe like the Saints. They're in your division, but you're willing to, to you know, sometimes work with your enemies when you have to. Maybe the Saints want to come up for an offensive tackle, whatever their plans are. Maybe there's another team that wants to come up for an edge rusher if Kayvon Thibodeau falls. And if you can trade back to 11, 12, even middle of the first round, 15, 16, take a quarterback there and then get some day two picks, which you don't currently have, you're in much better position to have some success. I Again, I would be fine with trading down and still taking an offensive lineman and then perhaps trading up into round two a few four or five picks with that second rounder you you worked with and get a Sam Howell and if that fits your your needs as well because I think there's some the, the differences between the top quarterback and the fifth quarterback are negligible one's going to get drafted perhaps in the top 10 the other one could go as late as 50th or 60th and I think you're you're getting much more value in round two if you're able to to surround your team with with other good players as you point out that's exactly what Carolina needs to do because they are a terrible football team Ryan Wilson is our guest. Follow him at Ryan Wilson CBS. So you don't have Aiden Hutchinson going number one to Jacksonville. Take me behind Jacksonville at number one overall, their biggest need with Trevor Lawrence because you can have Trevor Lawrence as a superstar on the horizon and maybe the best defensive edge rusher, a cornerstone of that franchise, and they already have a pretty good edge rusher there too. Your philosophy behind what Jacksonville needs to do. Yeah, and, and that's the, the conundrum that Jackson finds itself. So Trent Balk, he's the GM. Doug Peterson is going to be the new head coach there, first-year guy coming from Philadelphia. And, and sort of the things you hear in, in the media murmurings is that, well, Trent Balky drafted Alden Smith because of his traits back when they were in San Francisco. And Alden Smith was a really good football player, electric, a year one guy, a part-time player, got double-digit sacks. But the second half of that story is that Trent Balky also passed up on J.J. Watt and Cam Jordan, and I think those were probably long-term better picks. I don't think that's much of an argument. And using that same logic, Aiden Smith, Aiden Smith, Aiden Hutchinson feels like the easiest pick of this draft. I love Aiden Hutchinson. I think he deserves to go first overall, and I'm talking about him in relation to Trevon Walker, the the, the edge rusher uh, out of Georgia, who's gotten some mention as a possible first-round candidate and that he compares to Alden Smith because mm-hmm. of the traits. All that said, I have them taking Nikki Kwanu, as you know, the, the offensive tackle out of NC State. And the reason are, are two, is twofold. Number one, Trevor Lawrence got absolutely killed last year because the offensive line was suspect. 
Yes, they brought back Cam Robinson. Yes, they signed Brandon Scherf. Keep going. Don't stop there. Give Trevor Lawrence every opportunity he has to succeed. And you also touched on the fact that the Jaguars have used a first-round pick on edge rushers in two of the last three years. Caleb on Chase on and Josh Allen are really good football players. That team still stunk because edge rushers aren't going to turn your season around for you. And I think protecting your most important asset in Trevor Lawrence is where you start the conversation. Iki Kwanu is my OT1. If you like Evan Neal, take him there. But do something to help Trevor Lawrence. Ryan Wilson, as we wrap it up. So for me, being in Vegas where the draft's going to be, the Raiders don't have a pick because they went out and got Devontae Adams, which was great for the Raiders. And they don't pick to the third round. So for me in Vegas, New York better show up. I mean, the Giants and the Jets have four of the top ten picks. If they screw this up, can you imagine the New York Post, the Daily News, what's going to happen? They, they have to go four for four. They have to take four players between those two franchises that play in the same stadium and nail it. And it shouldn't be hard to do it because there's elite offensive linemen there. There's elite corners. They can get the best safety there. So they should be able to get through this. Who do you think has more pressure on them, the Jets or the Giants, to nail this draft? I think it's the Giants, only because things didn't work out with Gettleman and Judge. Mm -hmm. Daniel Jones, is certainly his seat is certainly hotter than Zach Wilson, who's coming into year two. Robert Sala, I still think, is in that grace period. Uh, after showing some good things at times in year one, that team wasn't very good, but but they battled, and, and they, you felt like Zach Wilson got a little better as the season progressed. But to your point, so Gi- Giants pick five and seven and the Jets pick at four and ten. If you mess this up, that means you were terrible at your job because there's going to be so many talented players. You talk about the offensive tackles, the edge rushers, even safety Kyle Hamilton. Also wide receiver for the Jets. A lot of Jets fans want a wide receiver there. And something else to keep an eye on uh, is what happens with Debo Samuel. We know that the Jets – wanted Tyreek Hill desperately. I wonder if they would be willing to come off that 10 pick. I was talking to a former general manager about this, and he said, look, 10 pick makes all the sense in the world if you're the Jets who, who know Debo Samuel from their time together at San Francisco. That coaching staff does Robert Sala. And you also know what you're going to get in him. We don't know necessarily what Garrett Wilson will look like if he's taking 10th overall or if Drake uh, London is taking 10th overall. Fantastic college players, but what's that transition going to look like? Those are questions. You don't have that question with Debo Samuel. So that's one more thing to consider as we go through this process with just a, a week or so to go. Um, but I think if you're the Giants and Jets, this feels like as close to a layup as you're going to get because you should be able to get great players. I had the Giants taking Evan Neal and Sauce Gardner at 5-7. and seven. I had mm-hmm. the Jets taking Kayvon Thibodeau and the aforementioned Drake London at 4-10. and 10. Those are great starts. Don't mess it up if you're the Giants or the Jets. Uh, finally, Ryan, you have, you have some trades put in here. I've been doing this 25 years, and look at mock drafts. It's really tough. And plus, you're going all the way out to seven rounds. So you have no idea who's going to be available in the five, six, seventh round, but you know team needs as good as anybody. So when you decide to have a trade early on, is that from a gut feeling, knowing teams and organizations, the fact that you're sensing some teams might want to trade out or move up in the draft here? It's really tough to throw darts and try to figure out which team is going to be motivated to move up or move out of a draft pick. No, absolutely. And full disclosure, we do at CBS Sports probably 40 million mock drafts starting mm-hmm. in the fall. I think the seven-rounder with trade is my, my colleague, Chris Paso, and that is actually crazy talk. Like, I wouldn't even go that far. It's one thing to do 262 picks just as they're listed. To do trades, you're, 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 you're trading into territory that, that requires – uh, some questioning of what you're up to there. So 
But to your answer your question about the trades in general, it is so difficult to figure out what these teams want to do, and that's why these mock drafts are, are sometimes an exercise of futility. It's fun, and we like reading them. I get that. But teams don't even have an idea. They're not going to start calling each other uh, GMs until a day or so before the draft about, hey, if, if this happens, would you be interested in, in this? So they don't even know how this is going to unfold, and I think the added layer, what are the Saints going to do? Because they made that trade a few weeks ago to get to the middle of the first round. And it's curious what their plans might be long-term, whether it's a quarterback, whether it's an offensive tackle, whether it's something else, a wide receiver perhaps. And then the other thing is the Debo Samuel uh, monkey wrench that I just mentioned. How is that going to upset the, the, the draft order and what happens with these trades, especially in the top 10? Because I think they're going to be some teams extremely interested. I mentioned the Jets. The, pa- the Packers have two first-round picks at 22 and 28. They make sense. 29 and 30. The Chiefs sit there. They make sense as a team. I mean, imagine Debo Samuel on that team. So that's going to be another interesting development as we go through this thing that will involve almost certainly trades of draft picks and probably players. And it's just, as you know, incredibly difficult to predict. But again, fun exercise, gives us something to do, uh, you know, with baseball not currently completely in full swing yet, just starting. Yeah, isn't it fascinating that we still have players that could be moved? You know, I don't think Baker Mayfield, people want that contract, uh, obviously, they, they, they want to see something happen with Cleveland, but that could happen before the draft. You mentioned Debo, and there's a lot of teams, I've always said, if you got players on your team that you drafted high, say they were former first-round picks or second-round picks and they haven't panned out and their rookie option isn't going to be picked up, just move them. Move them in the draft and get a fifth-round pick, get another sixth-round pick, get that player off the books because you're not going to pay him again next year and you're going to let him go for nothing. I hope we see more and more of that going forward. I think it's the best way to purge a roster of players you don't want anymore and at least get some type of value out of it so you can maybe trade up with extra picks. No, and, and that's the philosophy that I think you're, you're, you're spot on and that will probably mm-hmm. pick up steam because Tyreek Hill is the arguably the most electric player in football that doesn't play quarterback. I don't think that's – that, that's a hard argument to, to do otherwise. But here's the other side of the argument. The Chiefs got an absolute haul. They still have Pastor Mahomes and Andy Reid. The offensive line is still really good. They're still the best team in that division. And is Tyreek Hill going to put up those numbers with Tua Tonga-Bailoa? No, probably not. He's getting paid, and I give him all, all the credit in the world for, for working that out for him. He deserves it. But, but I think if you're the Chiefs, you understand that at some point, uh, it's not worth it. And that's a hard thing to say about Tyreek Hill and, and his productivity but you can take all the, the assets you've gotten in return, all the money you've saved, and get four, five, six players. And it's hard to make the case that Tyreek Hill is better than six players, uh, young players on rookie deals or cheap deals that can help your football team. Ryan, continued success. Look forward to looking at your book and uh, talking about it and recapping it with you after the draft in Vegas next week. Thanks so much for the time. Thank you, JT. Appreciate Ryan Wilson for checking in here. The mock draft guys, as I've said, I haven't said it to them, but I've been saying it. There's going to be a digital graveyard of these mock drafts. So many guys have a mock draft now, and that's why I'm trying to just put on the best ones here. It's a little bit different for us locally than nationally, where nationally everybody cares about it. And quite frankly, everybody here just cares about the party, the party that's going to be thrown a Mardi Gras style on the Las Vegas Strip for the Raiders because the Raiders don't have a pick in the first and second round. I would not be shocked by anything. Would not be shocked if Dave Ziegler moves up to the second round, but I think the second round's good enough. I don't think getting up to the first, unless he's able to package players, and that's going to be a topic next week. And it's going to be a topic in the first round when we're sitting at Dre's on top of the Cromwell wondering if the Raiders will be on the clock. 
And the only way I see that is if the Raiders pull off a blockbuster trade. The only way they can move up to the first round is giving up first-round picks down the road, something that the Rams have done. I don't recommend that. Dave Ziegler didn't take this job and move his family here to trade away future draft picks all over the place. He already got Devontae Adams. But if he's getting a phone call and someone wants a couple of players on the Raiders who won't be here, either by making the team this year or next year, and they're only going to get a one-year deal as Josh McDaniels and Dave Ziegler kind of feel them out, I'd move those players. I'd move one or two and figure it out if you can go up there. But that's what those guys get paid to do. Big week for us here. Again, thanks to Bobby Machado for kind of putting this all together, threading the needle for us. We've had great guests, Raider alumni. And next week, it doesn't get any better. Tim Brown, Charles Woodson scheduled to join us on the draft. A lot of Raider alumni in town. And many of them will have a heavy heart because we lost Daryl LaMonica. Let's wrap up the week by paying tribute to the Mad Bomber, Daryl LaMonica, a friend, someone I looked up to, a gentleman, and one of the great Raiders of all time, the Mad Bomber, rest in peace. Have a great weekend, everybody. We're ready to go on Monday for our draft coverage on the flagship Raider Nation Radio.